everyone. Welcome to The AHO Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program in South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. So last episode, due to social distancing and the COVID pandemic, I kicked off this podcast with a co-host close to home, my daughter, Megana. And I signed off thinking I'd be able to bring on a colleague this go-round. Well, we're still physical distancing and folks are dealing with all sorts of stressors, but I knew the show must go on. So what's a person to do? Well, if you're an Indian person, chances are good that there are lots of medical professionals around, and I am no exception. Joining me today is my husband, Sai Parthasarathy. But fear not, dear listeners, he is a certified professional and technically is a colleague. A board-certified pulmonary critical care sleep physician and chief of the division of PACS at University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson. He is the director of the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center for Sleep and Circadian Sciences and a nationally recognized physician scientist. Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you helping me out. Can you introduce yourself and maybe let us know what you've been watching on Netflix? I obviously have no idea because as you know, we are on totally different wavelengths. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Thanks for inviting me, having me here on your podcast. Um, uh, as uh, Indu said, I'm Sai Parthasarathy. My background is uh, both in uh, pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, and I do some uh, sleep research currently. And I also run a clinical center, which is a very busy practice with a lot of uh, patients with various sleep disorders. Um, and so that's me in a nutshell. Oh, and I watched uh, most recently on Netflix, I watched uh, Extraction, which uh, I'm pretty certain uh, uh, that you would love to watch one of these days. So let's get started. Why don't you just uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got interested in sleep medicine in the first place? Uh, it was a bit of a serendipity. I mean, I was in pulmonary critical care and I was looking for a job and that not had any exposure in sleep medicine and I had just completed or was nearing completion of pulmonary critical care. And uh, it happened in the most uh, interesting way. Um, a junior faculty member got married and left uh, academia. And um, so I was asked to train in sleep medicine so that I could potentially have a job and I finished my training. So I did an extra year of training after three years of pulmonary critical care and then trained in sleep medicine. And I was already working on patients re receiving mechanical ventilation in, uh, in the critical care unit uh, or in the intensive care unit. And um, I decided to study sleep so that I can actually study sleep in ICU patients. So uh, that's how my career began in a very uh, zigzag way of how I got into sleep medicine. And um, what, what I trained in for a one year period of time uh, is occupying a lot more of my life right now than what I trained in for three years of my previous pulmonary critical care fellowship. Yep, it's pretty crazy how uh, life happens when you least expect it to. Well, I'm glad you have found your passion. Um, I've always really admired the fact that you um, are really uh, motivated by what you do at work and really passionate about the field you study. 
Um, so thanks for joining us today to help educate primary care providers um, about the management of sleep disorders during the COVID pandemic. So with physical distancing in place and the buzz about reopening outpatient medical clinics, can you tell us a little bit about how sleep studies are being impacted? Um, I know that there is an option for ambulatory sleep studies to be done at home. Could you share any evidence behind these home studies? Are they accurate? And when do you know uh, or choose to order them? Yeah, I, I think that's um, a bunch of questions there. And um, I'll try to you know, chip away on them one at a time. Uh, so what happened with sleep studies right at the time that the COVID breakout happened? Um, this is even before the stay-at-home orders came out. I realized that um, you know patients coming in for sleep studies, uh, just as with any other place of healthcare delivery, can expose other patients to potential infection, either they be symptomatic or asymptomatic. Obviously, seven weeks ago, we knew less about this condition than what we do now. With every week, we seem to know more about this condition. And so, what happened immediately is that um, people, you know, I'm sure realize that the CPAP or BiPAP that we actually use in a sleep lab. When we do a sleep study, we also try to begin to treat them in the sleep lab so that we can find out what the prescription pressure for the CPAP or BiPAP is going to be. Uh, but the CPAP and BiPAP devices are aerosolizing procedures. Uh, they actually put out a jet of air into the patient room and they can potentially infect not only other patients in the area, but also the sleep technician that's taking care of them. So we were amongst the first uh, services to immediately stop uh, doing these sleep studies uh, because we didn't want to be causing any spread. So the laboratory-based sleep studies stopped immediately, uh, both for social distancing reason as well as the fact that we could be nebulizing or aerosolizing the virus in an asymptomatic or symptomatic patient that visited us. So the indications uh, for home sleep studies and what is the scientific evidence to favor the home sleep studies really depends upon what you're trying to do with a home sleep study. Uh, if you're trying to prove that someone has sleep apnea, in other words, your pretest probability for obstructive sleep apnea is high, then in that patient, um, a home sleep study would be great as long as certain other conditions are met, uh, such as the patient is not morbidly obese, meaning the BMI is not greater than you know, 35 kilogram per meter square, but however, some of those thresholds are different for certain third-party payers. Um, also, they should not have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We're talking about New York Heart Association, uh, you know, three and four, uh, not for one and two. They're not uh, eligible for getting a laboratory study. Um, but um, one and two, you can actually do a home sleep study. Um, if someone is, has COPD and is on home oxygen or if someone cannot follow instructions because they are cognitively impaired, in those individuals, it's better that they get a laboratory study than a home sleep study. So you need someone who can follow instructions, someone who's not too morbidly obese, doesn't have severe COPD that's home oxygen dependent and doesn't have severe heart failure that is of reduced ejection fraction. And, uh, and you should also be looking for sleep apnea if you're doing a home sleep study. Uh, you, you shouldn't be doing it for narcolepsy or any parasomnia. For that, you need to do a laboratory study. So outside of these uh, contraindications for home sleep study and outside of these indications for when you want to do a laboratory study, um, there are many physicians who exercise their practice-related you know, um, modifications of that. But in general, these are the guidelines under which we operate. How good are they, the evidence, as long as you use them for the right 
disease condition in this manner, um, they have a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, a likelihood ratio of a positive test and the ability to have uh, accuracy with figuring out who has and uh, has sleep apnea. However, a home sleep study is not a test that you would want to use in someone where you don't think they have sleep apnea, but you want to test for it to get it out of the way, you know, because you're interested in their insomnia that you want to manage and you're wondering whether this person could have underlying sleep apnea that's masquerading as insomnia due to various clinical reasons that you suspect that. In that situation, you're not going in trying to diagnose sleep apnea because that's what the patient presented uh, to, uh, you know, uh, your clinic with. And so in that situation, uh, you know, you would want to exercise caution. Like one of the key take-home messages here, which I know we will visit later on, is, is that with a home sleep study, if a home sleep study is positive, you kind of can take it to the bank because you sent the patient with a high pretest probability uh, for sleep apnea and you did a sleep study and it came back positive. And so now the positive predictive value in that particular scenario with a high pretest probability is in the accuracy for the device in detecting sleep apnea is pretty good. However, if your pretest probability was high or intermediate and the home sleep study comes back negative, you cannot assume the, the home sleep study uh, you know, showing that the person doesn't have sleep apnea means that the patient doesn't have sleep apnea. You can't take that to the bank. Uh, your pretest probability, when it's high or intermediate, you still need to essentially follow that through with the laboratory stu sleep study to confirm. So it's only with a laboratory sleep study can you exclude the presence of sleep, obstructive sleep apnea. And so uh, you cannot use the home sleep study for a negative predictive uh, value for that reason. So going back to talking about diagnosing a patient with sleep apnea, whether it's with the home study or the um, in-lab, how do you then take the next step? How do you determine what the right type of treatment is? Um, I know there are lots of acronyms uh, that we use, BiPAP, CPAP, which um, personally, it seems like almost all my patients end up calling it a CPAC. Uh, just seems like that's their more natural tendency. Um, and even the ASV or MAD, can you review what each of these treatments are and why you would choose one over the other for your patient? Yeah, uh, you know, treatment of uh, sleep disordered breathing, which is a constellation of both obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea, or complex sleep apnea, which is a combination of both obstructive and central sleep apnea, is going along the lines of precision medicine. In other words, we want to do a tailored approach. But precision medicine means I decide as a provider what's the best treatment for the patient. We also fully embrace patient-centered medicine at our center, where we want to find the treatment that's best for that particular patient with regards to what the patient wants. So all of those variables uh, lead to a combined decision-making. So ideally, we'd like to see all patients before they come in for diagnostic sleep study, be at home or laboratory. But because of the overwhelming prevalence uh, or high prevalence of sleep apnea out there and the overwhelming number of patients we get referred, uh, some of the patients who are pretty straightforward go straight to the sleep lab. And we end up having this conversation uh, when they're given the results over the phone. Uh, but since CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, yes, it is not CPAC, but it's CPAP that ends with a P, um, we uh, consider that as the gold standard treatment. Um, and why do we consider that? It's based on scientific evidence and it's guidelines recommended by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, 
which is the professional society that governs this area based on position statement that is uh, based on both expert consensus as well as scientific uh, evidence-based medicine. Um, and so we offer positive airway pressure therapy um, broadly. That's all of the PAPs, you know, CPAP, BiPAP, and all of that, which we will get into. Uh, so we offer that as the you know, mainstay gold standard treatment. But some patients on the laboratory sleep study, they may undergo what we call that split night study, where the early part of the study, they get diagnosed in the latter part, they get the posterior pressure therapy. And some patients will mark on their post-sleep questionnaire. We administer a questionnaire in the morning after the sleep study. And we ask them, hey, would you be amenable to trying CPAP if we were to give this to you? Most patients check yes. But there are some rare patients, I would say about 5% of the time, they would say absolutely not. And they'll write a little paragraph there saying they don't want it. In those patients, we don't end up giving them PAP therapy to begin with. But the other patients, 95% uh, of them, patients express that wish. And we look at that when we then decide what the next step is going to be. If it were a split night, the postural pressure therapy would have already been started that night and the latter half of the night. And we would know what prescription pressure to give them. But in some situations when there was not an opportunity to do that, either because there was no time or the patient didn't declare themselves as having sleep apnea until later into the night. In that situation, we bring them back for another study or we give them what we call an auto-PEP or an automatic posterior airway pressure therapy device or a self-titrating smart CPAP device where the machine can determine what's the right pressure uh, that needs to be uh, administered uh, to the patient so that we don't need a human being attendant to their sleep study and then trying to figure out what's the right you know, pressure setting for them and what's the kind of right mass that they need to put, be able to send them home with such a device. So what are all these word salads, you know, in, with regards to CPAP, BiPAP, ASV, MAD? So CPAP means continuous posture error pressure therapy. Uh, that means the word continuous comes from the fact that whether they're inhaling or exhaling, the pressure is constant. So it's a continuous pressure. BiPAP means that it's actually bi-level PAP. BiPAP is actually a trademark name of one of the companies. And bi-level refers to the fact that there are two different pressure settings. One pressure when they breathe in and one pressure when they breathe out. Usually the pressure when they breathe in is a higher pressure than when they breathe out because that allows the machine to actually push extra air. And when do we use that? You know, CPAP is something that we use in plain and simple bread and butter garden variety obstructive sleep apnea because the throat is collapsing much like the tire of a car that went flat, you inflate it with pressure after we seal the hole, we inflate it with pressure so that it is able to open up uh, the tube inside of the tire that allows the car to drive in the same way the throat is like a soft rubber tube and it collapses. And we can apply the pressure to be able to make it inflated. If it's not inflated, it tends to rub on each other and it creates the snoring noise and sometimes it gets stuck. And at that time, the patient actually has the apnea episode. Continuous postural airway pressure will actually splint that open, just like the air in a tire that inflates the tire and keeps it inflated and keeps the tube inflated. In the same way, this continuous postural airway pressure inflates the throat and keeps the throat open so that the patient does not obstruct, doesn't snore, and doesn't have an apnea. The bilevel PAP, what it does is it's a higher pressure when they breathe in. And that's pushing air into them whenever they inhale. When they exhale, the pressure is lower. We use that in some patients with obstructive sleep apnea who either have a very thick neck, a very narrow throat, or are very over, much overweight. In those situations, 
it's very difficult to get a patient to tolerate pressures higher than 15 centimeters of water under pressure, where you know, they're breathing out against a steep pressure of 15. Remember, the obstruction with sleep apnea happens when they're trying to breathe in, not so much when they're trying to breathe out. So we can always give a lower pressure when they're breathing out, but a higher pressure when they're breathing in is needed to keep the throat from collapsing. So in those situations, when we get to a CPAP level of 15 or so, or 14, it could be different for different patients, we tend to go to bi-level because usually patients don't tolerate a CPAP of 18 or not. Uh, not you know, some patients do end up tolerating it, uh, but uh, many patients aren't able to. So right around 14 or 15, we see how well they sleep. The technician, rather, sees how well they sleep. And if uh, the pressure gets to a point where it keeps waking up the patient, which they can see through both their video camera and they're monitoring the patient as well as the EEG that they're measuring uh, while they're monitoring them from the control lab, uh, the control room, rather, in the sleep lab they're able to figure out that, oh, you know, this patient, I need to switch over to my level because this person's having a hard time breathing out. And that's why they're not able to sleep and they keep waking up. So technicians are very experienced in being able to figure out when to do that switch. The other situation where we use the bi-level PAP is when someone is hypoventilating. And hypoventilation means their minute ventilation or their breathing is very shallow. So there are various patients who do that, you know, uh, patients who are morbidly obese, you know, with the BMI more than 45. Uh, people who have COPD because they're hyperinflated and they're not able to take in a deep breath because their lungs are already stuffed full with air. Uh, patients with neuromuscular disorders, you know, like uh, ALS and uh, various other types of neuromuscular disorders, they don't have the strength to breathe in deeply and therefore they need um, air to be pushed into them. And so adaptive ventilation or ASV is essentially, it's very, uh, the word, adaptive uh, essentially says that it adapts itself. Servo is a mechanism, it's an engineering term to say that it's looking for how someone is breathing. If someone has chain stroke breathing due to heart failure where they have crescendo, decrescendo breathing, where they have central apnea and then they huff and puff and then all of a sudden they have another central apnea and in between there's sort of a waxing and waning of their breathing that happens. So it's like a, if you look at the breathing pattern, it looks like waves of ocean in the sea in that situation, what the ASV does is that it smoothens the troughs and beats down the peaks. So essentially what it's doing is making the breathing more constant and regular rather than to make it undulate between apnea and hypoventilation and hyperventilation or hyperpnea where they're breathing really fast. And patients with heart failure tend to do that. And so... Um, and so... The other device um, you know, that's out there, which aren't used very commonly, is something called bi-level um, PAP, uh, auto PAP, you know, where, it, it, remember we talked about the automatic PAP, where you set guardrails, it's like a CPAP, but it's an auto CPAP. It gives the same pressure during inhalation and exhalation, but it adjusts itself once you give the guardrails. Similarly, there's something called an auto-level BiPAP, and so there are all these word salads and all of these devices that can meet certain disease conditions head on so that we can actually care for them in that manner. MAD is a mandibular advancement device. So that's something a sleep dentist would fit. And uh, essentially it's a dental device, which is an alternative treatment. So what is the best treatment? Well, posterior pressure therapy is a gold standard. Mandibular advancement device is a great uh, therapeutic uh, uh, opportunity in someone who's not able to tolerate a posterior pressure therapy, but some patients may 
initially refuse, absolutely adamantly refuse a postural pressure therapy device, in which case we can go to a MAD device. As long as their apnea is mild to moderate, if they have central sleep apnea, the MAD device is not going to work. So it's a device for obstructive sleep apnea. And also in severe obstructive sleep apnea, the MAD device may not work. But between having no treatment versus some treatment, yes, there are some patients where we sent them down that MAD route um, because they are not people who want to. Uh, however, there's something called an Inspire device, which is like a pacemaker device that people wear uh, under their clavicle is embedded there just like a pacemaker and there are wire electrodes that goes to the hypoglossal nerve on one side. And what it does, it senses their breathing whenever they breathe in with a sensor inside of their chest. It senses that they're breathing in and it gives a little bit of electrical activity to the hypoglossal nerve that brings the tongue forward and pushes it out of the way so that the tongue doesn't obstruct the upper airway and it treats the apnea. So what the patient does is he, they just put a magnet on top of their pacemaker-like location just when they go to bed and that turns it on and they put the magnet on the device again and it turns it off in the morning and during the night it works for them but that's an expensive device costs about $25,000 and uh, we have to carefully cherry pick who is the patient who would benefit from that. It sounds like there are a tremendous number of options um, and I feel like the science is there but uh, this seems to be one area where a lot of my patients really have strong feelings regarding their ability or willingness to uh, follow through with a, a positive airway pressure treatment. Um, and I find, unfortunately, that you know some or many of my patients are not adherent to their treatments. What do you find um, are the biggest issues behind non-adherence? And what are some simple ways that we as primary care providers can support our patients to actually use the device? Yeah, there is about, you know, uh, that's a great question. I mean, there's about, you know, 25 thematic areas of why someone would be non-adherent. You know, could they be non-adherent to a CPAP device or could they be non-adherent to their antihypertensives or, you know, cholesterol-lowering medications? So there is the entire patient factor, physician education factor, uh, health literacy, which can affect uh, you know, individuals even with uh, who are learned and have an education. So there are various um, barriers. One of the common barriers that we see in a motivated patient that ends up coming to see us but still has trouble breathing on a CPAP and using it nightly is nasal obstruction. A lot of patients have allergies and the nasal obstruction you know, because it was obstructing the way the CPAP works to inflate their throat, um, you know, makes them actually have apnea. It makes the CPAP not work properly. So we are big on assessing the patency of the upper airways, especially the nose, and seeing what can be done to treat their allergies aggressively, which we uh, do a lot of the times in our, you know, sleep clinic practice. So that's something that can be assessed by a primary care physician. The other thing is the you know, the mass comfort, uh, the settings on the pressure, there are various adjustments that can be done. Uh, however, that may be a little bit on the more technical side. And some of that, even in our sleep center, we let the technicians deal with issues related to the mask fit because they can immediately see a patient and size up what kind of mask would work best for that person. So it may just be that they're getting the wrong kind of mask. But nasal obstruction is something that primary care physicians can work at. Um, and so those are the various things that we do. But there are some patients where the apnea is of the wrong kind and they're on the wrong device. Um, you know, they have 
complex sleep apnea, which is a combination of obstructive and central apnea, but they're on a regular CPAP uh, device, and the regular CPAP device cannot treat complex sleep apnea effectively. So things like that may come up, uh, but the vast majority are various patient or behavioral factors, motivation factors, or there may be patient factors that uh, it has to do with nasal obstruction, or it could be an interface issue, or it could be settings on the device. No, that sounds great. And I think the peer buddy idea probably would work for a lot of uh, primary care physicians who have robust practices, and um, probably we'd be capable of matching up some of our own patients who have done well with either um, their sleep apnea treatment or their diabetes or hypertension and just serve as um, like a counselor or a sponsor for other patients. I think it's a great model to um, to carry forward in a number of different areas. And I think, you know, really getting into asking our patients what's going on, delving a little bit deeper into what their um, setbacks and what their perceived obstacles are would be very helpful. And um, I think like so many things, it's really important to get a very thorough history. So that kind of leads me to my next question. What questions do you ask routinely to get a thorough sleep history? Can you just give us a few and um, when can a PCP sort of, or how can they incorporate these questions um, into some of their visits? And I know that many people right now are having a lot of trouble sleeping because of the COVID pandemic due to anxiety and upheaval of routine, change in exercise habits. So insomnia is a huge um, issue for many. So how do you kind of start piecing through this kind of sleep problem? Yeah, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, there's something that I call uh, Julie's two questions. Uh, Julie Flygar is a patient advocate. Uh, she herself suffers from narcolepsy, and her narcolepsy wasn't diagnosed for a good seven years before it was diagnosed by her physical therapist. And so one of the key things I want to share with the primary care physicians is, is that by not routinely screening sleep disorders, someone can suffer with sleep disorders such as narcolepsy for many, many years before they get diagnosed. So in some ways, you would be significantly benefiting the health-related quality of life by diagnosing and detecting that. And what Julie uh, said was, you know, when she looks at review of systems, because she's a, you know, runs a public advocacy group, and uh, we work closely uh, together and some patient-centered outcomes research institute funded studies. And she said, you know, it would be very useful to actually, um, for primary care physicians to have two sleep questions. One is to ask, do you sleep well at night? Are you sleepy during the day? It's just as simple as that. Because when you say, do you sleep well at night and the patient says no, then you're going down the insomnia track. If someone says they're sleepy during the day, then you're trying to figure out why they have hypersomnia or a hypersomnolence uh, during the day. And that'll go you know, down a different path where you have to exclude things like sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and hypersomnia. And so it's very key that during, especially the COVID pandemic times, that uh, perhaps a piece of advice I would give people is, is that uh, it, at least during your, the wellness visit, you know, the annual wellness visit, uh, you know, in your review of systems, uh, please incorporate these two questions, which are the Julie's questions, um, so that you can get a simple question out of them. 
The one other thing I needed to mention is that recently I asked a primary care uh, physician as part of a patient stakeholder engagement group that we had, um, would you be able to ask these two questions? And um, <clears throat> this primary care physician said, well, you know what, I know those questions need to be asked, but when I ask sleep-related questions, what ensues is a long discussion, and I usually don't have the time for that. So it's sort of a, like a can of worms. And, um, and so I would say that would be sort of a nutshell approach, but I know one of the barriers for many PCPs is that they don't have enough clinical psychologists to refer them to, and that's why you have these internet programs. But again, for that, you need someone with internet access, someone who can you know, read these uh, small fonts on a screen and be able to navigate that. So how will an elderly handle that? So th those are all still unanswered questions as to how we improve those barriers, how we improve the access to those care for even the elderly. Um, but more research needs to be done. I feel like we've just sort of scratched the surface on sleep disorders and um, maybe you've bought yourself a part two to talk more about other sleep disorders. Um, but for this episode, it's been a really helpful review talking about uh, both the intricacies and the mechanics of obtaining sleep studies, the various types of uh, treatments that are available for, for sleep apnea, um, maybe the do's and don'ts and the whys and wherefores of choosing uh, different treatment options, uh, improving adherence of patients to those treatment options, and uh, touching the surface on those important sleep questions that PCPs can be asking uh, to just uh, do some screening for sleep disorders. And of course, the um, ever-present problem of insomnia that so many people cover uh, deal with every day. So if you were just going to give us a, a couple of take-home messages that you're really hoping that primary care providers will keep in mind with respect to sleep disorders, any um, ones that you would like to kind of wrap up with today? Yeah, I would say, as I mentioned earlier, home sleep studies are good for diagnosing people with sleep apnea, but don't use home sleep studies to exclude the presence of sleep apnea. To figure out a way, um, or talk to me uh, if you want to figure out a way where you don't have to answer a question uh, in review of systems, you don't want to pose these two questions and then have burn 15 minutes of your office time with that patient. Uh, or come up with a way that you can efficiently screen in the, during the wellness visit for the presence of sleep disorders because the rewards are many uh, where an ounce of uh, you know, prevention is worth a pound of cure uh, in being able to do early diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea or insomnia, both for their cardiovascular as well as for their mental health, respectively. Uh, and the third thing is if your patient is non-adherent to CPAP, uh, do try, um, you know, to look at their nares and see if you can help improve patency of their nasal airways and aggressively treat their CPAP, because a lot of times that could help fix their adherence problem, uh, but also have a, a referral pipeline uh, for not only for managing that difficult patient with sleep apnea, but also for your patients with insomnia as to who would be sort of the go-to and know some of these web resources where you're patient with internet access and who's knowledgeable and educated um, can actually get some self-help using an algorithm that's embedded in these programs rather than to you know wait for a clinical psychologist. Although if they have comorbid mental health issues, 
it may be uh, absolutely wise to refer them to a clinical psychologist, uh, even directly. We have clinical psychologists as part of many sleep centers, including ours. And so if the referral came to us, we'll make sure that that person is triaged uh, to be able to go and see this clinical psychologist directly. The last message I wanna say is that in a Harvard study where they took 100 patients with insomnia and screened them uh, with sleep studies, you know, sleep studies are not indicated for patients with insomnia. They found that about a third of them, about 33% of these patients who presented with insomnia complaints actually had underlying obstructive sleep apnea. And so it's very important to know that insomnia can be seen in two different ways. Insomnia can be a symptom or insomnia can be a diagnosis. So before you can attribute someone's insomnia to be due to insomnia where they have difficulty generating sleep rather than insomnia due to some other sleep disorder like obstructive sleep apnea, you know, for example, restless legs can cause uh, quote unquote insomnia symptoms, but that doesn't mean they have insomnia. You need to screen them for restless legs. So um, before you put pen to paper to prescribe a patient a sedative hypnotic or send them off for a CBTI, you do want to have a sort of a rudimentary understanding uh, of other sleep disorders that can manifest as insomnia symptoms. And you may want to screen them for obstructive sleep apnea and restless legs before you send them down that pike. Terrific. Great points for uh, all of us to keep in mind. And uh, if any of you out there listening have some ideas or thoughts on uh, what you think are the best practices of how primary care providers can most efficiently and uh, effectively incorporate those two sleep questions, please reach out to me via social media um, and let me know your thoughts. I will pass those on. And I really appreciate you helping me out today, Sai. I have now officially run out of medically inclined household members, so I'm really hoping colleague schedules will be less mad and that I'll be able to have conversations with some other folks from the University of Arizona medical community. But I hope you come back to find out what happens next time here on the AHO Way, where primary care is primary. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, and we're done. All right. Dude, that was a long one. Hey, Ajay, we're done. We may need to edit you, babe. <gasps> what? Ajay! It's done. Okay. How many minutes was that? Do I even want to know? The opinions expressed on this show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing clinician. This podcast episode was produced by Ajay Partha.